As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me two new-ish friends, one of whom I've met in person, one of whom I haven't yet. 
These are two co-authors of one of my favorite books of the last 12 months. The book is called Golden, and the authors are Lee Mars, who is a collaboration consultant, leadership coach, major universities, corporations, federal agencies, a longtime student of pioneering researchers and practitioners of the ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. In her professional work, she has led diverse initiatives, including a training program to promote an experimental mindset among teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals in products. Listen, in partnership with the Green Science Policy Institute, Harvard University, IKEA, Google, and Kaiser Permanente. We need this woman around. My second guest today is Justin Talbot Zorn, whom I fondly call a brother already. We've met a few times and I love him. He has served both as a policymaker and a meditation teacher in the U.S. Congress. A Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being, Justin has written for the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Foreign Policy, other publications. He's a co-founder of Astrea Strategies, a consultancy that bridges contemplation and action. And their work is to help leaders and teams envision and communicate solutions to complex challenges, which we need right now. The two of you have co-written this book called Golden. I'm holding the book in my hand. I am a very much a book holder. And I want to start by saying thank you for this book that has totally changed the way that I see and feel and practice, and ask you how this book came to pass. Elena, thank you so much for those kind words. So good to mm. receive that, and so good to be here with you. This book came from a feeling about the state of the world that could be summed up in a question. What are we going to do? How can we possibly be helpful and effective in making things better? It was early 2017, and Lee and I were just both feeling at a loss. And independently, we both came to this feeling that maybe the answers might not come through more data, more thinking, more talking. Maybe the answers lie in the silence. Not just getting beyond the noise or taking a media fast, but actually listening deeply to silence, finding the most pristine attention that we could find. So we took this hunch. It was during a moment of transition in the world, as for anyone who remembers early 2017. We took this hunch and we decided to write an article about it. Lee, you want to take it from there? Yeah. So we pitched this idea to Harvard Business Review that we would write, well, actually we pitched a few ideas, kind of managerial, regular ideas when we decided we wanted to write together. But we also threw in this wild card of talking about silence. And we got a response back, just write about silence, thanks. So <laughs> with this full permission, we started to explore these ideas that we were having that maybe some of these answers would come from beyond all the mental stuff, all the thinking, the talking, the arguments. And we wrote a really simple, straightforward article that ended up going viral. And it's actually, I think just tomorrow is its six-year anniversary of that. And when we got that response, which was really unexpected for us, we took pause. We stepped back and thought, you know, what is this? What's being asked of us right now? Mm -hmm. And then we just set out on this exploration of these conversations with neuroscientists and politicians and artists and poets and whirling dervishes and <laughs> all sorts of fascinating, fascinating humans, a man incarcerated on death row, a Grammy-winning opera singer, as you know, and asking them this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And it was really their answers that helped shape what became the book, because we went far beyond auditory into informational internal noises. And then this amazing space of silence is not just the absence of noise, but a presence. Mm. On page 10 of the book is where I start dog-earing like a maniac. And you say, so how then do we respond to the onslaught of noise. If meditation isn't for everyone, 
which ostensibly it isn't, but I dare say it might be. How do we bring remedies to the scale that's necessary in today's world? In this book, we propose an answer. And then in bold, it says, notice noise, tune in to silence. And there are three sort of aspects of this. I love a list. And the first is pay attention to the diverse forms of auditory, informational, and internal interference. So cool. That arise in your life. Study how to navigate them. Awesome. Number two, perceive the small pockets of peace that live amidst all the sounds and stimuli. Seek these spaces. Savor them. Go as deeply into the silence as you possibly can, even when it's only present for a few seconds. And then finally, number three, cultivate spaces of profound silence, even rapturous silence, from time to time. This is really good instruction for anyone who feels meditation is elusive or not for them, as you say in the book. Where did these come from? You know, in some way, these came from necessity. We talk about how we can perceive these small pockets of peace that live amidst the sound and stimuli. I have now three-year-old twins at home and a six-year-old and active and working in politics and policy and have a full work schedule. Lee has a teenage daughter, also a really full work schedule. So for us, it was like we didn't want to write this book that told people to go off and run away to a monastery. We didn't want to write a book that was about running away from the world and going as deeply as you can into the silence by blocking it all out, even though we have great respect for monastic traditions. We wanted to write a book that was about how we can find the most pristine attention possible if the silence is only available for three or four seconds. You know, maybe at best the silence, the space beyond the interference is only available for a really short time. Not just the quantity of the silence, but the quality of the silence. How deeply can we go into it? So that was part of it. And then this idea that Lee just mentioned of silence, not just as an absence, but a presence, something we can get into a little bit more. This idea that when we find the most presence in silence, when we find these places where the silence is so rich, where it's so profound that we lose our sense of ordinary everyday self, we lose all of that self-referential talk, the silence can be not just silent as we think about it, but actually booming, rapturous, have this rapturous orchestral kind of quality to it. So through stories in the book, we explore what it's like to find this silence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On page 23, you talk about the attention economy, which is the reason why this is so hard for us. It produces benefits to global society that now measure in the tens of trillions of dollars. Can you talk about the attention economy and how that has so negatively impacted our capacity to be with this silence? I'll start us off and just say that there's some reality checks here, just like how bad is it? We needed to dive into that. Like, is it really worse or is it just us? Is it this phase of life? Is it that you know, we don't like like what's happening in the world? And we turn to that auditory noise, just what we tend to think of, the decibel levels in the world, to see, is it really louder? And the answer is yes, it is exponentially louder. Across Europe, an estimated 450 million people, and that's roughly 65% of the population, live with noise levels that are deemed hazardous to our health. So there's serious implications. And I mention Europe, or we mention Europe here, just because they're better at measuring it. <laughs> but it is still an issue here with sirens are six times louder in our urban environments in the last hundred years just to pierce through the sound. And informationally, in 2010, Eric Schmidt, the then CEO of Google, made a striking estimate that every two days we now create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. So there is just a mass proliferation of mental stuff grabbing. Every two days. Yeah. Yeah. When we, we produce more information between the dawn of civilization and 2003. Yes. That is his estimation. 
Good grief. Elena, it's almost like, you know, we take it for granted now that so much of our work, our social lives are, you know, are within the attention economy. But in this book, we look at what's really underlying that, that like as a society, if we look at our economics, if we look at our values, we value the maximum possible production of sound and stimulus, the maximum possible production of mental stuff. Even if that stuff isn't really the signal that's pointing us toward leading more fulfilled, happier lives, even if that stuff is just distracting us toward one agenda or another that doesn't really matter toward our fulfillment, these days it's like noise is our most celebrated addiction. And in the book, we explore like the economics of how that's so, that like the way we actually measure progress. According to gross domestic product, our society's foremost measure of economic output and in turn progress, the way we measure the success of a government or the success of a business cycle, for example, you know, just like a pristine redwood forest is priced at zero, according to GDP, unless we chop it down or find some pure economic value for its consumption, our pristine attention is measured at zero according to GDP. It doesn't have a value unless it's chopped up and turned into eyeballs on a screen that turn into revenue for advertising or some other economically productive purpose. So the upshot of that is that we as a society often mistake feelings of stress for aliveness. As a culture, we're not organized to value pristine attention. We're not organized to value this space of pure presence. And we explore in this book, like, what would it mean, not just for us as individuals, but what would it mean for us as communities, as a whole society, if we were able to value pristine attention as a public good? On page 26 and 27, which is wide open right now, I'm holding it with my arm open to read, and then you just brought it up exactly. Simone Weil, the French philosopher, says attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. And you guys go on to say the full plenitude of our conscious attention is actually something sacred. And the problem, you say on page 26, is that GDP is just a measurement of raw industrial output, You quoted social theorist Jeremy Lent, who puts it like this. This is so chilling. GDP measures the rate at which a society is transforming nature and human activities into the monetary economy, regardless of the ensuing quality of life. So if we cut down a pristine forest to collect lumber that gets sold at Home Depot, that registers as a pure positive The worth of that pristine forest, which exists outside the monetary economy, is implicitly priced at zero, you say. This approach to measurement gets to the heart of many of our challenges as a society, from disrespect of nature to lack of appreciation for for community. It's the problem of trying to transfer everything into the monetary economy. We're all part of it, too. You know, we're making books, we're selling books. We're selling all kinds of stuff and trying to help people put their money in the right places. It's like the biggest quandary of ever. And I I don't know how to face it. I don't know how to work with it. This book has helped me a lot to really look into what nature really means to us and how to teach more from that place as a priority rather than some sort of background or surrounding You know what I mean? The place of deep reverence for nature, for community, for service, for the sort of awakening mind to what is most important now. Such a big topic. I just want to thank you so much for bringing it up because there isn't another book (laughs) about this in this particular way. Um, So thank you both. On page 41, you say, silence is renewal bunch of synonyms for silence that maybe will help our listener get a little closer to what we're talking about. 
Silence is renewal. Around the time we were writing our Harvard Business Review article, Justin's friend Renata said, quote, silence can reset the nervous system. I have this highlighted and circled. Silence can reset the nervous system. It only takes a moment and suddenly the whole body feels different, even right now. I'd like to go on with the other synonyms, if I may. Silence is humility, the stance of not knowing. Thank you, Roshi Bernie Glassman. A place of letting go. Silence is accepting that it's okay to not fill the space. Silence is also clarity. Cyrus Habib describes to us an ability to discern what is truly in the heart. Some of my teachers ask, what is really alive in you right now? In your book, you say that Cyrus speaks of silence as the capacity to not say the first thing that flies into your head, even for just 30 seconds. It's like the teaching often attributed to the psychologist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. It's one of the most important books, his book. Silence is also two more things. Expansion, the unfolding of the attentional space. And silence is also the essence of life itself. I'm on page 42 for our listener if you want to look in the book. Silence is the essence of life itself when there's nothing making claims on our consciousness. We could encounter the canvas of creation. Rick Rubin's book is a really nice follow-up. If you're listening to us right now and you love this book, Golden, I would go to Rick Rubin's book next. It's perfect uh, segue. But you guys, you did such a tremendous job of researching and talking to so many different people. I thought it might be nice to talk about Jarvis J. Masters for a second, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Well, Jarvis was introduced to us at a point where we were, I was actually mulling over these ideas of... Um, with a close friend who's an, a friend of Jarvis as well, Rebecca Solnit. So we were out on a walk, and this is what she said. She said, it sounds like it's time for you to meet Jarvis. <laughs> like we had graduated to the point of thinking about silence and noise to the point where Jarvis could come in as a teacher, and boy, has he. And <laughs> He's come into our lives that way, but he comes in as a primary teacher in the book. So Jarvis is on death row for a crime, the preponderance of evidence, and we certainly believe he did not commit. He's been on death row for 32 years. In death row, it is a cacophonous um, place of echoing, hollering, you know, keys, metal slamming, concrete, alarm sounding, all kinds of things at all times of day and night. Um, when we speak with them on the phone, we're often overwhelming in the background. But um, he has managed to find quiet in this place. When he first set foot into San Quentin, he tells us a story of touching the ceiling with great ease, putting his palm flat on the ceiling and then reaching his arms out to the side and thinking to himself, it's like I'm being buried alive. And even as a 19-year-old young man, he knew that that thought would kill him if he kept entertaining it. So he interrupted that thought. Many years later, he came across Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism in particular, and started to get interested in the practices there and sitting quiet in meditation. When he was first introduced to that idea, he thought, are you crazy? Like closing your eyes in prison and <laughs> tuning into something. No way, man. I, I got to pay attention to everything that's being said and everything that's happening at all times. But still he tried it and he took to it really well. And in particular, the place of compassion. Compassion is really his doorway to silence. He tells us a story of coming down with COVID early on in the pandemic when very little was known. COVID at first hadn't hit San Quentin at all, and then it just took over. And many of your listeners may remember hearing about it. It was written up in the New York Times and all over. It was really, really devastating. He and his neighbor were the first to get it. His neighbor was the first to um, die of COVID. Mm. In that space of all the external auditory noise, all the internal fear and noise, he found his compassion for his connection to all the people 
with COVID at that time, he thought to himself, a voice came in saying, it's not about you right now. Thinking about the people with young children who might die of COVID, people with pre-existing conditions like his neighbor who soon passed away, thinking about everyone and just spreading that compassion out. And then he said it quieted him, was the deepest quiet he'd ever known actually to date. Wow. I'm just starting work in the prisons here in New Mexico and like I'm just deeply steeped in how important it is to alleviate the suffering of the incarcerated right now. So this is very meaningful to me. (laughs) I'm so happy and grateful that you included him as a true teacher in this book because I think to normalize the conversation around how challenging it is to land in the prison system in this country how painful it is to be stuck there, how sorely lacking it is in true rehabilitation, true teaching for the most part, how opposed I think we all can say we are to the death penalty. It really has a great weight, gravity for me. So thank you for that. Of course. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. I'll just add one thing that's so important, what Jarvis pointed us towards early on again when he did um, step into his cell and when as he started years later to find a practice that he really got clear on that the way to quiet the noise in this impossible situation was to quiet his responses to the noise and that's been his decades-long practice and for him one of the most quieting things to do is to tap into that compassion that he feels for all people for all beings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on page 124 you quote neruda And I would love to turn to that page. The Still Small Voice, page 123, is this section. Pablo Neruda writes on page 124, If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves. And I circled this and have lived with it for some time. I brought it with me into the practice period in January when I was meditating for six or seven hours a day for a month, never understanding ourselves the tragedy of this and the gift of, and I realized the luxury and the leisure and the privilege that I had to sit for that many hours for that many days consecutively. It is the, I think, biggest tragedy of our time, this problem of never understanding ourselves because we never actually stop. Um, One of the teachers asked me in a practice interview, Wendy Johnson Sensei, who wrote uh, Gardening at the Dragon's Gate, 
she looked at me, and I could tell that this was coming from her own experience, that a teacher had said it to her, and it turns out it was Thai. She looked at me, and she goes, so what helps you stop? And I was just, you know, speechless, dumbfounded, just started crying, basically. And I have spent, since then, the last two months, just trying to figure out how to stop often, because I move so quickly. And for our listener, I would love to know you guys, your own experience of this. You're both extremely productive, giving, wise, studied, studious humans. What helps you stop? Can we hear from you first? Mm, from me personally? <laughs> yeah, I want to hear how you answered Sensei. That's sweet. I just started crying, as I do. Mm. I have, you know, a few things help me stop. One is a yoga practice. And in particular, ugh, it's not really a stop, I have to admit this. Um, I love practicing yoga, and I love having my notebook nearby because anytime I make a discovery or figure out some new way to say something or feel something, I write it down because I'm going to use it in a class for Yoga Glow. It's really hard for me to just practice for the sake of practice. So stopping for me is really the meditation practice. Like I don't forego that any day. I wake up, I bow, I have this little setup in the corner of our bedroom, and I bow to the cushion. I turn around clockwise and I bow to James, whether he's sleeping or awake, meditating in his own way on the bed, sitting up. <laughs> um, and I sit. And now I have a rock suit, so I put that on, I chant the verse of the robe, and I sit. And that's how I stop. Otherwise, I don't. It's really hard for me. Um, and I've started secondly and lastly making myself tea and like serving myself a proper Chinese tea with the whole setup, everything, Chashi, I think it's called, the, the mat that I put down, my brazier, my tea kettle, my little side handle, everything that goes into a full ceremony of tea served to one person. And I'll sit there and have tea for a little while and then I'll set up my computer and actually work with my tea and process my email for 30 minutes or so. But that's not even stopping really either. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> I knew it might sound like a cop-out to ask you to go first, but I knew your answer would be really beautiful and really helpful. Well, ish. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, really I don't helpful. really stop. Like, I stop for meditation. I don't really stop otherwise, but I really enjoy deeply, and I think this is important for our listener, I enjoy deeply what I'm doing. And that took many years and a lot of effort to create the sort of circumstances to be doing what it is that I love all the time, not just some of the time. I think there's such a key in that when you said enjoy deeply what you're doing, because, you know, underneath this question, like, how do you stop is also like the question of stop what, you know, stop this momentum of what for us, for Lee and me in this book is unwanted distraction, you know, unwanted in the sense of not what we truly really want. And for me, often what needs to stop is this kind of like momentum when I'm in my email, when I'm checking social media, when I'm like so focused on some tasks in my head that I've lost sight of my breathing body, my feeling body. I've lost the connection to what really animates life, which is the appreciation that leads to love. So for me, how do I stop? It's like, how do I reconnect to the appreciation through which I can reconnect to the love? And for me, one thing that's super simple for me is uh, a luxury that you and I have laying out here in Santa Fe is, is a lot of mm. sun. Not at the oh moment. God, it's a yes. rainy day. It's a cloudy day here now. Mm -hmm. We're getting that atmospheric river from California has made its way over. But a lot of we get a lot of sunshine. But I step outside and I feel the rays of the sun. I feel the ways that the sun nourishes the earth, the way that the sun makes the plants grow, the way that the sun makes life possible. And all of a sudden, all that stuff 
in my head, all that stuff in my email inbox and on Google Drive. <laughs> I'm able to, you know, not totally let go of it because it's still there to attend to what needs to attend to. But I'm able to cut through it for a moment and reconnect to the essence. Sometimes when I do that, I take a simple gesture that, you know, can look a little bit fluffy or new agey to the outside observer, but I usually do it when no one's around <laughs> or maybe just my kids watching me. I just hold my heart. I just hold my heart and I just feel my heart breathing here, feel the breath in my chest and just holding my heart. Something so simple, but reconnecting to the heart, reconnecting to the body, getting away from all that mental stuff. These are just simple things that may not happen in total silence because that's not how we define silence in this book. But it brings me back to the place where nothing is making claims on the consciousness. Brings me back to this place where nothing is interfering with the true perception and intention with respect to what's really good for me, for my family, for what I perceive to be what's good for humanity. I'm able to connect to the essence. Where nothing is making claims on our consciousness. Oh, I want to hear what you have to say, Lee, also, but I just want to step in and say, like, how exactly is that possible for a single mom who's dealing with three kids and no uh, help? You know, these are the people that I instantly think about when... I hear this, you know, I don't want to be like argumentative or anything. I just want to point out that like, I have you, if you are that person, I have you in my consciousness. <laughs> I really, I don't even know what to say about this, but I have you in my consciousness. I'm seeing you in the early morning before anybody wakes up. I'm seeing you in the late evening while everyone's already asleep, just gathering yourself for a moment of this where no one is making any claim on your consciousness. Well, mm -hmm. this is, I'm so glad you mentioned this because this is why we wanted Jarvis to be our guide. This is why we didn't look to a monastic or look to someone who was living off in a cabin in the woods, transcendental style. You know, we looked to Jarvis, someone who is surrounded by, as Lee described, the most intense auditory noise, but also the most intense noise of fear and uncertainty. And we wanted that person, Jarvis, this dear friend, to be our guide as to how to get to encounter these spaces where nothing's making claims in our consciousness in the sense of no one else's agenda trying to dominate what it is that we're perceiving in the world. Yeah. It's also why we wanted to make this about something much broader and more accessible than just speaking to meditation as a way, a route to quiet, because <laughs> we actually came across a, a single mom, much like you described, who's, who I told her, she asked about what I did, and I told her about writing this book about silence, and she immediately launched into a, oh my God, I need to meditate, I've got to meditate, I can't believe I haven't started already. Now she's like a partner and a firm single mom, two kids who are in sports and she's running around crazy. You know, it's just like, that's the last thing I wanted her to feel or do. And of course, not even what this book is about, but we really wanted to create an awareness that silence and quiet can come in, in the, that moment that you just pointed us towards, Selena, just in a moment, in that stepping out to the sun, like Justin was describing, that it could come through infinite ways. Like she really loved to walk her dog. That was her thing. That was her quiet. Perfect. You know, it can come through so many routes or just a moment getting up a tiny bit earlier than the kids before the, the chaos ensues, you know, and that's what she ended up really finding her quiet in. So that is what we're interested in is the silence, the quiet, whatever we find, however we find our route there, that that gets honored. It's not seen just as a silly hobby. It's not as highfalutin as other things, those kinds of, that's just democratizing this a bit. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. You also touch on my teacher on this page, uh, 125, the facing page, the medicine that Roshi Joan talks about in her work, facing ourselves in silence means having the courage to become more aware of what's been hidden. While talk of, quote, a still small voice implies 
a sort of biblical kind of divine revelation. What we're really talking about here is something more familiar and accessible. Intuition. I would love to talk about this. This is so hard to talk about. I feel very connected to my own intuition now, and I feel, you know, at the tender young age of 52, like, okay, I know myself now. I respect myself. I'm sober. I'm present. I'm aware. I'm kind. I'm working on serving. I'm I'm a good mom. I'm doing all these things. But it's so hard to talk about. And I would love to help our listener who might be thinking, oh, I have no idea what my intuition is or what it says. I would love to help our listener get a little closer to that if possible. Yeah, Lena, you mentioned earlier the words of Cyrus Habib and a little bit of background on him. He's the son of Iranian immigrants to the U.S. He went blind when he was eight years old because of a childhood illness. And he went on to go to Oxford and Yale Law School, become a Rhodes Scholar, and become the Lieutenant Governor of Washington State when he was in his mid-30s. And then everybody thought he was going to run for governor or run for Senate. And he had an announcement for his next move. And his announcement was that he was taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. And the New York Times said it was like a politician taking a sledgehammer to their own ego. And we interviewed Cyrus quite a bit for the book to explore this question of why he did this. And a lot of people said, oh, he needed to get rid of the stress of his life of being a politician. It wasn't working for him. But he kept emphasizing that he wasn't running away in a palliative kind of way. Like he didn't mind the noise of constant stimulus of TVs blasting in government offices and constant meetings and fundraising requirement. He didn't really mind that so much per se. It was that he wanted to continue to be able to serve, to continue to be an activist and an advocate and work on issues of poverty and justice for people in prisons and difficult situations, but to do so from a place of intuition. And for him, that meant that he needed to turn down the noise in his life so that he could hear the signal, so he could hear the signal of what was really happening in his heart. And he described to us about how like, when he's able to get beyond the noise of not just all the interference in his life, but this noise of constantly needing to perform to other people's expectations. Like when he could get beyond that noise, get beyond the noise of constantly feeling pressure to think of what to say, all of a sudden he could tune into his finer instruments of perception in his heart. And he describes it as like, at some level, yes, he's able to determine what's happening in the world better. But at another level, when he's able to tune into this finer perception, this intuition, he says it's like for him the path of working to become a connoisseur of creation. Like he could taste the food more. When he's washing dishes, he can feel the warm, soapy water on his hands in a way that he otherwise may have just been lost in the static in his head. So he's it's like... It's funny, I marked that yeah. too. Yeah. I marked so the connoisseur of creation. Uh -huh. That's of intuition for him, you know? Somebody who wouldn't have thought in those terms before. Right. For our listener then, I think I would like to sort of break that down and say that anytime you take a real moment of full attentional balance, you are a connoisseur of creation. You are exercising your intuition. You are tapping into that river of consciousness that will lead you always in the right direction, even when it seems like it's leading you in the wrong direction, it's the right direction. It's funny, for years, I've been studying with Roshi Joan, and she always talks about attentional stability, attentional balance. And she talks about it in relationship to caregivers and doctors and hospice workers and people who uh, tend to the incarcerated. And I never really, 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 really understood it, of course, until I sat for that long period of time. But with this book in my pocket, 
when I read this book and then I brought this into the practice is when I started to feel, oh, that's attentional stability. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what it means to really tap into the moment, you know, the bubbles on your hands, the boiling of the tea, the pouring of the tea. Uh, I have a teacher by the name of Balin Neff. She's all matters of spirit on Instagram. And she taught this whole weekend immersion. It was just divine. And so many things were transmitted. But at the very end, the most important instruction came in four words. Stay with the tea. I mean, what else is there? Stay with the tea. Stay with the tea. I've let that sort of infuse all the things that I do. And that, I think, is attentional stability. And that, I think, is the source of a connection to intuition to your points, both of you. It's occurring to me that intuition maybe can get a little bit intimidating, like feels sort of far away or a big aha. But if we do just think about it as really just shifting our attention, turning down the noise, tuning into silence, noticing the signals, finding that place of discernment like Cyrus teaches us, that really it's that simple. And then the intuition can be heard or felt or realized. Page 268, finally. Coming to the end. Thank you guys for your time. Idea number seven. You have a whole list of ideas. I just, I love the way you've organized this book. goes like this. We're at the bottom of page 268. Presence, says Don St. John, is having all your energy and attention at your disposal and not inaccessible because of worry, distraction, anxiety, or chronic tension. I'm actually going to read that again. Presence is having all your energy and attention at your disposal and not inaccessible because of worry, distraction, anxiety, or chronic tension. This is the work of our lives. I've spent months and days, we all did, uh, spent years during this COVID time disconnected from each other, and yet, We could be totally connected to each other across thousands and thousands of miles and hemispheres and time zones. And this work of releasing worry and anxiety and chronic tension, this is the work of our lives to enjoy the connectivity that we share and to not have those habit energies come into play. That's the work of our lives. And I think you guys have created a, a tome that can guide us through this work. And that's why I'm so happy and honored that you're here. Truly. I feel it was such a leap writing this book because we didn't know how it would be received. We didn't know if what we were saying was just, you know, our own, this feeling that we happened to come upon. And it's such a beautiful thing for us to feel you receiving it, this this message with us. And it's really a joy to be with you. And I'm really um, struck with some beautiful little synchronicities. I'm due for a catch-up later today at 2 o'clock my time with Don St. John, who's an old friend who I haven't caught up with in a while. Wow. And he's a somatic relational psychotherapist who wrote a beautiful book called Healing the Wounds of Childhood and Culture based on his experience in a going through severe traumas as a child and, and coming out to be this joyous, <laughs> wonderful helper in the world. And the other synchronicity there is that that quote of his that you read reminded me so much of something, a, a quote I was contemplating this morning when I woke up, which was um, something I read from the Christian mystic Cynthia Bougeot, where she says something to the effect of, to not ever do something in a state of internal brace. The brace, the internal holding and brace is never worth Oh, the brace, cost. B-R-A-C-E. Brace, like a tightness and holding. And I was just this morning contemplating that quote and like, do I really have license to let go of that holding? And we started off, as Lee mentioned, writing this book about the noise of the world, often in the auditory sense, the informational sense, 
But as we got deeper and deeper into it, what does it mean to be in this place of pristine attention? We started to feel more and more the somatic element to it, that the noise can also be somatic. It's what is interfering with our true perception and our attention and our ability to connect with other people and our ability to receive the intuitions about how we can best serve in the world. So I love you've really brought this conversation full circle with by, by bringing that forward and, and in so many ways for me. And it's really a joy to know you and to be here with you. Thank you for reading the mm. book and sharing. It's such a good book. Lee, I would also like to say to both of you, thank you both for taking the risk. I think our listener can also take a note there. Even if you think, well, I don't know, is anybody going to read this thing? Is it going to be of use anywhere? Like, if it is meaningful to you, I promise you, there's somebody else out there who needs to see, read, feel, experience whatever it is that you have to offer. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. When those noises would come in, you know, if we could quiet down, it would. the answer was always like, yes, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Do not stop. Mm-mm. Thank you both so much for your time and your effort. I look forward to knowing you both better. I will be seeing you at some point in the near future, both of you, and uh, just sending you all my love, respect. Thank you. Thank you and you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.